right? You know, the, the prize is sort of in the process rather than the outcome. I like what you it's, said. Right. It's sort of this idea of like, when do I need to stop doing blank? I'm stuck in my way. I'm stuck in the house for most of the day. I'm chasing my dreams or running away. Good morning. Good morning, Good Dr. Mermelli. Good morning, everybody listening to this or watching this if you're on YouTube. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time you choose to consume this information at. What's going on? Welcome to another episode of Hey Mark. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Mermelli. We're going to chat a little bit. If you haven't seen this show before, what you're in for is basically me talking about you know my challenges, my adversities, and then I also like to talk to other people about challenges they've faced, adversities they've faced, or any stories that have helped shape them into the people that they are today. If you're down with that, feel free to listen. If, you, if you're down with that, feel free to watch. But if you're not, you probably won't like this kind of content. You might need to find something else. So without further ado, Dr. Mermelli, introduce Good yourself. Morning. Tell people where you're from. Tell people you know, what you do and where they can find you on social media. Amazing. Well, good morning, Mark. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It is an honor. And I do like that coffee mug, by the way. I wanted to point that out. It was a gift. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> yes. Um, well, whoever gave it to you had good taste. Uh, so I'm Dr. Josh Mermelli. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, and I'm based in Los Angeles, California. I work uh, primarily doing clinical work. I see folks on an individual basis. I also work a lot with couples and with families. And my primary focal points as a clinician are trauma, substance abuse, and I do work with mood and anxiety disorders as well. And I have, I'm recently licensed, but I've been practicing in the field for little over a decade actually which is very scary to say I was actually talking to someone yesterday and they're like do you know that we graduated college almost 20 years ago and I was like stop talking right now like I don't want to hear another word uh so it's an honor to be here and thank you thank you I gotta say this is the first time I'm having an actual mental health professional on this so I'm really excited like this is groundbreaking for me it's the first time I've actually been speaking to a doctor and not have it just been a doctor that's actually helping me like this is kind of a cool right. perspective um i don't even know where to kind of begin i guess like the first question that's kind of been on my mind while i've been like kind of preparing for this is kind of like how has the practice shifted in 2020 like what kind of like obviously you've got a lot of restrictions going on in california as well we've kind of chatted about yeah but like how has the practice kind of shifted in 2020 with these restrictions is it easier is it harder to do your job yeah you know it's it's really interesting because on the one hand i think it's changed dramatically and i'll share how and why and on the other hand it really hasn't changed all that much at all uh it's changed in the sense that i'm seeing everyone virtually via telehealth so um, there's a lot of different HIPAA compliance uh, options from Zoom to uh, different portals. Um, and so it's changed in that regard. And I'm used to working with folks in person in the office. And there's this sort of, you know, unspoken, non-palpable 
uh, vibe that you get just from being in the same space as another individual that is is missing. And it's, so it's definitely been an adjustment for a lot of my clients. It's been an adjustment for me personally as a consumer of psychotherapy services myself. And, you know, I tell people all the time, if you're working with a therapist who either expresses that they have never been in therapy themselves, or it's clear that they have never been in therapy or should really benefit from therapy, run for the hills. Uh, so, you know, it, it's different for me too. You know, when I'm used to being in the room with a client, I'm used to being in a room with another clinician, it's not changed in the sense that, you know, I think past the immediacy of COVID, COVID-19, just the 2020 stream of events and people talking about that in brief, most folks are tending to center around the same types of issues, intimacy issues, fears, anxieties, and the uncertainty and inner workings and unpredictability, not of 2020, but of their own minds. So to some extent, I think it's a very familiar territory for a lot of the folks I work with, being now in a world where there's a mirroring of some of the unpredictability and uncertainty that takes place uh, you know, internally. That makes sense. So if I kind of understood that correctly, like obviously it's a lot less intimate, you're not like chatting with people in person, but it seems like the problems that they're dealing with are kind of problems that people typically deal with already, but this year's already like kind of like, I guess, highlighted them or, yes. or like made them a lot more extreme for people. So it's like kind of the same yeah. problems, but a lot more highlighted. Yeah, I, I, I think that's accurate. And I, you know, I work a lot with anxiety disorders and, and obsessive compulsive disorder in particular. And uh, it's, you know, kind of funny. I have a one or two clients who've said to me, even though this year has royally sucked, there's something that's very reinforcing, validating, and um, yeah, just validating about having the world sort of mirror some of the practices of extreme hygiene and anxiety surrounding exposure and some of the avoidance uh, associated with certain anxiety disorders that they experience more regularly. Yeah. So like question for you, who, like, who is the, the demographic coming to see you? Is there a specific group of people? Is it like kind of broad across every single, you know, every, every demographic you could think of, like mm. who are the type of people that, that need a little bit of help? I would say the bulk of my clients are between the ages of 18 and 35. I do work with the subset of folks who are, you know, anywhere between 35 and I'm working now with someone who's uh, in their early 70s. Uh, it's split across genders um, and, you know, gender presentations, non-binary, male, female. I work a lot with the LGBTQIA plus community. So, um, I think that that just comes as a result of being openly gay myself and being very fascinated with the work. And there's a particularly elevated presence of trauma 
amongst not only folks of the LGBTQIA plus community, which is a mouthful, and I'm very impressed that I've been able to say that acronym twice without stumbling. Um, and, uh, you know, and look, the truth is, I, I don't know that there's an acronym that will ever be all encompassing, but it's closer than it was. Um, and there's a, an elevated level of trauma amongst folks who present in uh, gender presentations that are non-binary. And so I think that naturally, based on being a trauma-informed therapist and based on being gay myself, it, it's sort of gone hand in hand. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you, so it's, it's typically younger people, though. Like, I feel like 18 to 35, like, that's a young demographic, no? Mm-hmm. It is. And I, I'm so grateful for it because I think that there's been a growing sense of compassion and consciousness surrounding the prioritization and need for mental health. Um, and it's kind of a, an interesting dichotomy because I think social media, Instagram, uh, which is how we met, uh, on the one hand, it sort of breeds and uh, brings to light a growing set of pathologies on the one hand and on the other hand it's made the provision and accessing of mental health services and a certain extent a lot more uh just what's the word i'm looking for acceptable endorsed uh normal you know even when i was growing up 20 years ago or 15 years ago it wasn't necessarily taboo to go to therapy but you know, there was still this kind of inkling that, oh, something must be wrong. Whereas now I think it's a much more, particularly in cities like Los Angeles, and there's just a growing consensus that psychotherapy is for anyone who's seeking to improve the relationship with themselves, others, the world around them. You don't need to be in crisis to benefit. Yeah, I like that a lot, actually. I was going to ask you, before we jump to like the social media thing, because I'm pretty curious yeah. to hear your your uh, looks on those, I was wondering, well, why do you think that it's the younger demographic that, that gets help more often? Is it that they're suffering more? Is it that they have less of a stigma attached to it? Is it because, like, because I, I can think of like my father's generation, and if you talk about things like depression and anxiety, he, he either explains it as like, that's just a human thing that you're supposed to feel and just keep working. Like, he's like, what are you talking about? You just, yeah, you stifle that and you just work. Right. You know, right. like, so what, is I do. It, is it because yeah. like the younger generation maybe experiences it more? Is it because that they have less of a stigma around it? Like, what, why do you think it is like that? I think it's a great question and point, and I think it's both. I think that there's certainly less of a stigma. I also think that there's a greater level of pathology, quite frankly. I mean, there's, and this is my sort of anecdotal personal experience and from what I've seen on the ground, but I tell folks all the time, I'm so grateful that social media was, you know, it was maybe in the infancy stages of development when I was a teenager, but it really, nobody had, at that point it was called the Facebook. Instagram wasn't around. You know, the Tinders, Grinders, whatever's of the world were really not around. There were chat rooms, but there was a far less um, infiltration of social media and um, really just, 
uh, fixation on self. There's a whole slew of narcissism that comes from social media and being constantly aware of our appearance and what I call comparative dismay, comparing our insides to other people's outsides and what we see people present with, which as we know, typically is a shinier, uh, you know, filtered version of their real experiences projected onto social media. And so I think folks are at an all-time high of social disconnection, which is very ironic. Yeah, I always, uh, like I, I say to my roommate and all the time, like, social media is a highlight reel. Like it's just people posting like, oh, this is me at my vacation. This is me when I'm right. getting my biggest paycheck from commissions from sales. Or this is me when I'm, you know, doing my workout here and I feel awesome and I've used this filter and I'm looking good in this, this set of clothing. And like, right. it's just a highlight reel. Like that's yep. all it really is. And then we compare Correct. our regular lives to someone's highlight reel. And it's like, well, no wonder you feel like shit. Yeah, look, if I based my impression of what the world ought to be by some of the Instagram feeds that I get, I will be incredibly disappointed that I get out of bed and I'm not, you know, in a with a 12 pack stepping into, you know, my 10 foot tall G wagon and riding around with 19 Rolexes on my arm. Right. I mean, and, and you got an infinity for, pool on your balcony. That's right. Exactly. That's exactly right. And then, you know, I'm so impressed with all these TikTok dances and they're moving their arms and there's words coming out. So, you know, I'm lucky if I open my mouth and there's words coming out that make sense. So it's very uh, different and there's a heightened sense of, you know, perfectionism, and um, it's really kind of a dissociative experience because it's not at all consistent with what is happening. Certainly in today's world, people are losing jobs, people are suffering, people are experiencing hurdles in, in real meaningful and relatable ways. And I think we get some of that, but by and large, Instagram is a fairy tale fabrication of you know, what the world really looks like. Yeah, it's pretty wild. And I feel like that stuff that's always gone on, like I feel like the whole like keeping up with the Joneses or or, or making face kind of thing, like or saving right. face, I guess the saying is, like I feel like that's something that's always gone on. Like people have been buying houses they can't afford and trucks they can't afford and cars they can't afford for years. Yes. Like that's kind of cross-generation. But I feel yep. like with social media, it's, it's kind of... Uh, it's a new generation where people can just do it a lot easier. Like you don't actually have to make the purchases. You just have to take the picture of someone else. Correct. Right. That, can I, yes, I was around, uh, I'm not mentioning names. I was around some folks and a couple of weeks ago and I, uh, you know, wearing masks and I, was on a walk. This is recorded in 2018, man. You don't have to worry about that. Right, exactly. <laughs> and um, and I, I, my friend was walking a couple of steps ahead of me, and I said, "Oh, um, you know, here, stand still. I, you have a tag. I want to pull the tag off of the back of your shirt. There's a tag sticking out." And they're like, "No, no, 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 no! Don't touch it. I'm going to return it." I, they're like, literally. And I said, "What do you mean?" And they were going to take some pictures in this outfit. So yes, there's a real, and then return the item. It's it's a very sort of look i think on the one hand human but also fraudulent display of 
performance and success and it's very unrelatable. We're sort of trying to consistently beat the next person and overmark our sense of success. Yeah, so what do you think the answer is to that? Like, how do you think that we could have like more, like what would you say, I guess, is a positive relationship with, with social media? Like how could someone mm-hmm. say someone's addicted to it and they're listening to this and they're like, man, this is me. This is exactly mm-hmm. how I am. I strive for that picture. I strive for that Instagram story or that TikTok story, whatever they are. Right. Like what, what would, in your eyes, what would be a, a good relationship with social media? Well, I, I think the first piece is to normalize the fact that we should be somewhat addicted to social media because that's how social media was designed. We're not... Uh, you know, uh, there's nothing wrong with us. This isn't a pathology that's inherent to us. It's a normal response to an abnormal and overwhelming set of um, just sensory overload. And I think that we are consistently being confronted with a very intense and immense amount of sensory overload and material that we're just not hardwired to be able to process. So the first piece is, I think, normalizing and empathizing with this uh, response. The second piece is to really start calling the shots and scheduling time with social media and also scheduling breaks. So I like the idea of taking social media holidays. So, you know, one, two days of no social media access a week. Um, They can be in sequence, they can be separated, and also coming up with a time limit. Now is the time, ironically, even though many folks have more time on their hands, they may have lost jobs, they they may feel more isolated, and there's a tendency to want to connect more. But social media after a certain point of time, makes us feel more disconnected than connected and makes us feel more um, lonely, makes us feel more anxious and depressed. So I think putting in time limits, you know, whether it's 30 minutes a day, 45 minutes a day, I, I don't think that we should be spending more time on our phones, computers, tablets, whatever, but less right now. I like that. I, uh... Yeah, I got a couple points I'd like to make on that. My uh, roommate, sure. Aiden, he just took an entire month off social media. So he didn't even, he didn't delete the apps off his phone. Cause him and I ha- kind of have like the same, uh, like I call it like the brute mentality of just like, look, I know this is gonna suck, but this that's the point of doing it. So Correct. he didn't delete them off his phone. He had to have them there so he could cognitively say, I don't need that right now. You know what I mean? Right. I do so, know what you mean. It's it's the equivalent of I'm not going to take an alternate route so I don't drive by the alcohol store. I'm going to drive by the liquor store and, you know, understand that sensation and urge to get out of the car. And I'm going to utilize skills, tools, resources to cope through it rather than I'm going to, you know, take another freeway or another street and not be impacted at all. That's not a real world response. Exactly. And it, um, he took the month off with the exception of text messaging his friends 
and he would use Snapchat, but not watch the stories. So he would just have mm-hmm. conversations or send pictures to his friends and he doesn't have data on his phone. So like, that's just like a Wi-Fi thing. Like if he's at home kind of deal. Right. So he, I love that. Yeah. He had a really good productive month and he feels a lot better now, but I like what you said about scheduling it off, like kind of time blocking it because there's so many people, especially like peers of mine that are, you know, trying to grow an online business. So they're trying to build like yourself, like you kind of talk a lot about your business on your social media. So there's a lot of people in our generation that kind of feel like, Hey, I need to be like Mm -hmm. present on social media. And by time blocking it, you're still like congruent with, okay, I'm still going to have a presence on social media, but I'm in control. I'm not just going to impulsively open Instagram and scroll through stories. I'm going to actually time block this out and intentionally use social media to help build me up. I think that's right. And it's been clear about intention. You know, the next time that one of your viewers, listeners is inclined to get on Instagram or get on Snapchat, I feel like I'm railing on Instagram, all of them, Facebook, whatever, Twitter, TikTok. Um, I I think it's- MySpace. Right. I don't even know if MySpace is still around. You're aging yourself there, Mark. But, you know, I look, I think it's very important to be clear on intention. Why am I making a decision? Because it can't be automatic, right? We're, we've got to be somewhat armed and protected against the very intense set of sensory overloads, um, the potential for this comparative dismay. And so I think a way to equip ourselves to healthily connect on social media is to be clear and aware of our intention. Am I wanting to collect information? Am I wanting to acquire a greater sense of connectivity? Am I wanting to um, sort of reinforce my, uh, whatever the case might be something functional, then that's a good opportunity. Am I feeling lonely? Am I feeling scared? Am I feeling mentally uh, unsettled and disconnected, probably not the time to get on social media. Yeah, I like that a lot. We have a rule in our apartment right now and uh, we both fall to it all the time. And it's kind of like something that we do to keep each other like socially accountable. But our rule is uh, no social media within the first hour and the last hour of your day. I love that. That's yeah. wonderful. We're early risers here. I'm usually up at around four. He's uh, my roommate, Aiden. He's usually up around like between four and five. And I, I'm like, this morning we get up and we're going to go for a run. We're just sitting there sipping our coffee and I have my phone in my hand. And he goes, bro, I know no one else is up. Get off social media. <laughs> I know that's exactly right. what you're doing right now. There's right. no way you're texting your mom. Like, there's no way. Correct. It's four o'clock. So get off Instagram. That's right. But it's great accountability. And I think we have this sense that, you know, I want to, the early bird gets the worm, so to speak. And I want to kind of beat people to it. And, and I don't want to be surprised during the day. There's this faulty set of beliefs that if I can just get to my inbox more quickly, if I can just check my DMs or what's the buzz, then I'll somehow be more prepared and won't be taken off guard during the day. The problem is it doesn't really work like that. And we convince ourselves that we don't hold the capacity to be thrown off center and off course and still be okay. That's the one thing that this year has taught me more than ever is it's okay to not be okay. Like it's okay. Like you won't, you're not going to die. 
You're not, the world's not going to end. You know, like it's okay to just not be okay for, you know, a couple hours, a couple minutes, a couple days, a couple weeks even. Absolutely. And I think resilience is something that I've heard folks really reference as being crucial during this period of time. Yeah, I feel like resilience is really good. It's, it's something that it's got, it's, it's kind of like a two-sided coin because I've talked to a lot of people as well. You know, you have to be resilient through any struggle, any adversity, obviously. But there also yes. comes like kind of something, I, I think I've heard you speak about it on a couple different posts. I, there's a bunch of different phrases or words for this. I call it the alpha male mentality. My buddy Joey calls it cowboy mentality. But it's kind of just like that, you know, oh, I'm not feeling any pain. I'm going to keep going. Mm. or I'm going to take risks that put me in like physical harm. You know, like mm. kind of like that. I don't know. I've heard it being called like, like toxic masculinity. I call it like that alpha male mentality. Like, Right. So I, I love that you pointed out that distinction because the difference is, is that the alpha male, the toxic masculinity, the sort of caveman, you know, prowess, if you will, to me, that implies the absence of vulnerability, the absence of emotional investments and emotional risk. Whereas when I, here and when I reference vulnerability, I'm speaking of a person who has made a conscious decision to be vulnerable and present, to take an emotional risk, to, by virtue of being a member of this world, be thrown off course at times, to be somewhat injured, to sort of fall down, to experience that pain, and then to summon the courage, the wherewithal, and the connection to be able to stand back up and forge forward. So to me, vulnerability implies the decision, a conscious choice to be a member of the feeling, experiencing, um, you know, vulnerable world. Yeah, that's why I say it's kind of like a. It, it, there's obviously two sides to every coin. That's the saying, but it's kind of it kind of is a double-edged sword that way. I feel like it's something that, like I use the phrase alpha male mentality, but you could even just say alpha human. Like it doesn't. It's not even just like a man problem. It's kind right. of like a human problem. And and I use the phrase alpha as a joke. Like that's kind of what me and my buddies used to say when we were in the gym growing up. Like it's like. Well, you got to be the alpha. You have to be the right. alpha, the apex predator. And it's, it's poisonous, but it's also part, like that part of that mentality because I have it in me. And, and part of that mentality has carried me through a lot of adversities, but part of it has put me into a lot of struggles as well. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's yes. weird. It's, there seems to be like, like everything else in life, there seems to be like a, a healthy balance. Yes. But it's finding I- that. Totally. And and look, I think some of this is biologically hardwired and it's, it's not necessarily a gender specific phenomenon, but as, you know, survivors and when we talk about evolution, evolutionary theory, we've sort of had to quote unquote power through. Um, but one of the things that's, that tends to be implied when I hear alpha male is this sense of emotionlessness. And I've seen more often than not that there's actually a heightened sense of emotionality in this alpha male mentality. The trouble is, is that it tends to be an emotion that's very specific and all encompassing. And that emotion is typically anger. 
And what we know about anger, in some ways, what we know about anxiety is that in small doses and for brief periods of time, they're actually motivating. They catapult us to be able to follow through with tasks that are otherwise physically too strenuous or emotionally too taxing. But over a period of time, they actually wear our ability down to conquer hurdles, to move through challenges in a meaningful, functional, connected way, which of course uh, you know, impinges upon our viability and our long-term success. Wow. I like what you said there. There's a, there's a couple of things that I really, really like that you said. The first one is that the, the alpha male, we'll just call it, call it the alpha mentality because it's not like mm-hmm. we've already discussed. It's not like gender tied. But we'll say like the alpha mentality seems to seems to display like a certain level of emotionlessness. Right. That's a word. Mm-hmm. I think that I don't know if you've read much stoicism or anything about stoicism. And I think that there's a huge difference. Like the way that I would strive to be the man that I'd like to become in the future is not somebody that doesn't feel those emotions but somebody that's less impacted by those emotions. Mm. So like if any of my dreams takes off, if if this podcast takes off, if any of my other business ventures takes off, I'm going to be stressed out very often. That's, that's inevitable. And then you add in, you know, I don't have a partner right now, but you add in a wife, you add in children, you add in all of these other aspects, a mortgage. I'm renting right now, but when I have a mortgage, right, all of these things are going to be stressors on me. And I'm not trying to avoid the stress. I'm trying to avoid the impact that it has on my self-esteem, on my discipline, mm-hmm. on all of those things. So I think there's a huge mm-hmm. difference between not feeling the emotion and not being detrimented by the emotion. Right. I agree with you. The one thing I would challenge or encourage is rather than considering uh, a healthy response or a functional response long-term to be an avoidance of the impact of that emotion or an avoidance of the impact of that stress, I would encourage an experiencing of that stress in the moment and a response to that stress that's sustainable over time. Most folks believe at their core that the way we conquer painful emotions and painful moments is to avoid. And we avoid through distraction, we avoid in its extreme form through dissociation, but emotions are intended to be felt, even the really crappy ones. And one of the things that Brene Brown, who is um, a author and uh, doctor of psychology, uh, and she's tremendous and does a lot of work on courage and vulnerability, that she says all the time is that we cannot selectively numb emotion. If we numb the anxiety, the terror, the panic, the uncertainty, we invariably also numb connection, joy, intimacy, hope. So I, I, I think this notion of not being bogged down by any one emotion, not accepting it as fact, but rather feeling, but also allowing ourselves to experience that feeling and then taking action to buffer that with healthy cues, healthy skills and tools. I think that's probably the most sustainable way to survive this planet. I 100% agree. And I think that that actually ties into perfectly the other thing I was going to say about what you said, which was 
that the, the, the main emotion you see kind of the alpha person display is anger. And, yes. and without diving too much into it, because obviously you'll know this a lot better than I will, I read somewhere a while back, so it's kind of foggy in my brain, but that anger is just a secondary emotion to whatever primary emotion you're feeling. And so when you mm-hmm. don't address, say, like anxiety or, you know, uncomfortableness or envy or any of these things where you're just like kind of, you don't feel like you're good enough and you don't address that emotion, that's when the anger mm-hmm. comes into play. And it's like, when well, you're not actually angry at that said situation. You're angry that you're feeling envy and you don't understand the envy. You can't put words to it. You don't understand why it's happening and you're just completely ignoring it. Right. So in that sense, because anger can be absolutely a secondary emotion in many cases, in that sense, I'm hearing the potential for judgment. We tend to judge our primary emotions and be angry towards self. Anger, most typically, especially amongst the folks I work with and, and particularly with trauma survivors, tends to be a response to counter a feeling of terror or fear. Anger is a motivating emotion, right? And anger sometimes drives our ability to escape danger and escape and counter fear and um, hurt. And, and so to that end, I think it's, there's something functional there. But anger, again, in, in chronic doses, tends to actually rupture our immune system it impacts negatively upon cortisol levels, which is the stress hormone. It has the potential to reinforce an overactive amygdala, which is the part of the brain that's responsible for the fight, flight, freeze response. And that's functional in emergency states, but not chronically and over time. Because if we're responding to, you know, a hangnail with a 911 response, we sort of lose perspective, right? And our ability to rally when we are in actual danger, I think becomes really cloudy and hampered. Yeah, I think that that's, um, that, that kind of brings me back to what I was trying to think of. I guess it helped me form my, my thought earlier on this generation. I feel like, and, and this is something that probably some people are going to get upset about me for saying, but I feel like this is the most comfortable generation to live in. Like my, my grandparents and my parents even immigrating from places in Europe, like they literally lived through wars. Like, I don't know what a bomb sounds like. Like that's mm. a completely different life. And so when we feel things that, you know, maybe the older generation would be like, yeah, that's just part of life. It feels devastating for our generation sometimes. Like our, yes. our, our amygdala, like you're saying, like our amygdala is developed to help us run from lions in the, in the jungle. It's developed to help us, you know, get food before we literally starve and die. Like that's what it's programmed for. And since it doesn't see those things anymore, then we get a hangnail and it seems like the end of the world. But I feel like maybe this year is a little bit more traumatic for people as well. It is. And what I would also add to that Mark is that, you know, we're not thankfully in a world where Right now, we have, you know, the Hiroshima's, so to speak. But I also think that we have our own version of Hiroshima, our own version of terror in the form of 
the intense focus on perfectionism, the intense pressure to perform and to compete. You know, I have a 16 year old nephew, which ages me, I know. And, uh, and all with siblings, you're young, man. Fair enough. Well, thank you. And, <laughs> you know, and one of the things I see him doing is, you know, he's, and by the way, he actually happens to, I think, have a fairly healthy uh, response and, and connection to social media, but he still has this extra pressure of checking his phone. You know, when I was 16 years old, I did have a cell phone for, the purpose was for emergencies and driving, but I was maybe spending an hour at most on my phone a day, at most. You know, I, the idea of having a, you know, sound, which triggers a belief that, oh my gosh, someone must, must have commented on my picture, or there's the potential for bullying um, on a viral virtual level is so overpowering and overwhelming that former generations didn't have anything of the kind. So you're right, we have resources, we have tools, there's a sense of comfort associated with some of these technological and you know, social connectedness uh, gains, but we also have a whole other set of pressure and tension and competition factors that really are, I think this is the first time in, you know, maybe ever where we are being met with so many overwhelming technological advances, um, social media advances, political, uh, health shifts and it's incredibly taxing and overwhelming to growing generations, right? I don't know what it's like to be a senior in high school and have to have my classes via Zoom, right? And and on the one hand, I'm really grateful that I don't know what that's like. You know, for kids who are bullied in 3D person, I cannot even imagine the struggle and terror of this notion of viral bullying or being fished online it's so uh it's a really scary spot yeah i do got to say like um i didn't really have to deal too much with bullying in high school to be honest so that's not something that i was concerned about it's something that i've seen later on as i speak to people that have been and yes. even addressing myself like i was there was times where I was in denial for it for a lot of t a lot of years, but I acted like a douche a lot of the time. There was a lot of times mm -hmm. where I could see myself addressing some of the actions and behaviors that I had and saying like, dude, that's a bullying behavior. Like you pride mm -hmm. yourself on being a sensitive, like nice guy, but that's a bullying behavior. And so mm -hmm. like I've had to kind of re-go and recount those things, but I couldn't imagine, you know, at least when, when like it sounds like you or I were in high school, when you get home, like, that's it. It ends. You go home to your right. family, your siblings. Maybe you go and play sports, whatever. But the high school bully can't get you anymore. Like, I remember getting no. on my school bus. There was maybe one or two times where I felt, like, super uncomfortable or in physical danger. And, and it's like, once you get on the school bus, especially because I, I grew up kind of by the farms, like, I'm getting far away from my school. Like, there's nobody yep. that can touch me now. But I couldn't imagine, like having to worry to get home and then just get continuously bullied after that. Absolutely. So I think you're right. There's this ongoing uh, level of exposure and access 
you know, our inner worlds have become the equivalent of New York City. They're the, they never sleep. And there's this constant exposure and pressure, which is why I think it's really important, you know, and I give kudos to your roommate and to you for taking, but your roommate in particular, for taking these breaks and really challenging the notion of I am always going to be on, right? Because it's impossible to always be on when we're constantly on over here, we're off over here. How many times have you seen your friends? And I know I can speak for myself. We're all at a, a restaurant for dinner, again, pre-COVID, and we're all on our phones, right? 100%. Yeah, I, I've, I've tried to play that game with people as well, where you put your phones face down, the first person that takes it pays the bill. Mm. And then I, I started to get friends where they just don't care. They're like, I'll pay the bill. I don't give a shit. Right. <laughs> just don't get, like, dude, that's not How the dare point. you keep yeah. me from my my Snapchat? Yeah, it's like that's not the point, man. How about we actually interact with each other right now? How about we have exactly. a, a conversation? It's like absolute madness, but let's just try it out. Absolutely. So I love that. I love it as well, man. I like that. I like that game. It seems to help out, but I feel like right now it's not even possible, really, especially for you guys. It's not possible to go to a restaurant, so you don't have that worry right now. Exactly. So, you know, but still, I encourage for folks who are living in areas where there's a particular COVID um, heightened threat and concern, which it seems like is most of us, to still make time for a phone call, a FaceTime, a when it's appropriate and based on state and um, municipal laws to go on a distanced walk to really take measures to remain connected and also respectful, right? Yeah, I gotta say, okay, so there's, a, I, I, I gotta respect your time and I'm not cutting this off yet, don't worry. Okay. But I have two topics I wanna jump into with you. Let's do it. And they're both, uh, they're both like, topics we can talk on forever so i'm going to try and keep it somewhat concise but i'll sure. let you choose i'll let you choose the topic of discussion right now there's two things i was going to speak to you about the first one is sobriety and the second one is getting help so i want you to just pick whichever one and i'm going to jump right into it i think we can maybe blend the two let's should we try to be uh sophisticated and and go for it Oh, I just lost you sound-wise. I was getting attacked there. Sorry, I was getting a little no worries. On, my, on my computer and on my phone. It's how they are when they're connected, right? But I understand. Um, let's Yeah, let's jump into both of them. Let's jump into sobriety and getting help. The first thing I wanted to ask you about is, is stigma attached to both of them. And now you and I, like, we're newsflash for anybody listening to this this is only our second time talking that isn't over email or through text message or, or uh, instagram dm so I, i'm still getting to know you as well but yes. tell me about like how long you've been sober if you want to maybe go into why you got sober you can that's that's mm -hmm. your story it's your opportunity but like talk to me about being sober and the challenges that kind of surround that Sure. So I've been sober around eight years, um, something I'm very proud of and hold near and dear to my heart. Congratulations. That's huge. Thank you. I, I, it is huge. And I certainly wouldn't be able to do the work that I do um, if I weren't, not if I weren't sober necessarily, but if I weren't 
clear on my journey and my recovery and my sort of source of supply to be able to maintain this. And, you know, in a nutshell, I think that the intensity and perceived judgment and scrutiny and I was bullied as a teen, as a kid and early teenage, uh, early teenager and alcohol um, and other substances were certainly a means to try and create a bubble around myself and around my world. And it was a way for me to mute some of the inner monologue that I had surrounding other people's judgments and impressions of me. You know, I tell people all the time, my drug of choice is and was your approval. So from a very early age, I learned how to develop a puppet personality to be able to attempt to control the room, obviously based in self-doubt and fear and um, terror of judgment. And in a nutshell, drugs and alcohol gave me wings to fly and then took away the sky. And I felt from a fairly early point in my life that I um, was no longer able to access the relief that that you know medicine had once supplied me with. And I found myself not at a point where I had had enough, but where the medicine wasn't working any longer. And so... I'm fortunate and blessed that I have an amazingly supportive family. And um, I, you know, frankly was working with the therapist and they really encouraged me to take a closer look at my uh, choices. And I made a conscious decision and took a lot of work to get myself well and to be sober. And, you know, the hardest part about being sober is that, and I tell this to folks, is I, there's no vacation from Josh. I wake up as Josh and I go to bed as Josh. There's no, I don't get to pack a bag and, and sort of take a vacation. And there's something that's very validating and rewarding about that. But I've had to find other healthier ways to uh, recharge without disconnecting because disconnection represents a potentially dangerous zone for me. Yeah, I, I, uh, I have a very crude way of explaining it. I, uh, I call it raw dog in reality. You're, you're oh, raw oh dog I like that. Reality. Yeah. By the way, that's going to be my new thing. Forget the whole spiel I just gave you. I'm just going to say raw dog in reality. Yeah, like you're that. just raw dogging it. There's no, there's no in-between. You're just yep. raw dog in that reality. There's no, there's, I like what you said. There's no break from Josh. Like that's just Correct. how it is. You're still no you. vacation. I used yep. to, I used to be like that as well. I, I, uh, I, I wouldn't say I'm sober off alcohol, but I avoid alcohol pretty much at all costs. Like if you were to speak to any of my friends, they make jokes and say that I hate fun, but I, mm. I I'm not a big drinker. I used to be as a teenager in my early twenties, I was, but I've realized that I don't know if it's my brain chemistry or just the way that I'm programmed. I think it's a combination of a lot of things. Alcohol fucks me up. It doesn't have the mm -hmm. same impact on me that it does on everybody else. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm the type that, you know, I go to a party, I go to a, a club or a barbecue. It could be any setting. And I see everyone else drinking and it looks like they're having a blast. They want to dance. They want to interact with people. And then I'm sitting there drinking and I'm like, 
I don't want to be here right now. I, I can't communicate properly. I can't form an opinion on anything. I don't right. want to move. I just want to sit in a corner and stop talking to me. Like that's how Correct. I get when I drink. And yeah. it almost makes me aggressive because then I'm uncomfortable and I don't like how uncomfortable I am. And I start to doubt myself. Like, why does everyone else have this like reaction? But I have this reaction. Obviously there's something wrong with me and it spirals me downwards. And so I just yeah. avoid it all together. I don't like I I'll go to the event, but I'm drinking sparkling water, cranberry juice. That's like I'm yeah. a soda cran kind of guy. Well, look, it, it, it sounds like you're making a conscious choice to not ingest a substance that for you has hazardous, you know, toxic effects, but you're not avoiding social connection and being amongst your peers and milieu, which I think is really important. And I love this message and it's so important, particularly I think for whatever reason, for men to hear that, and women, um, that, um, you know, you can have fun, you can be young, you can explore yourself in the world and take risks and be spontaneous and not ingest things or do things that are ultimately hazardous to you. The sense of keeping up with others or conforming, I think has the potential for a real toxic spiral. And one of the things that I think we're generationally seeing is that folks are getting more comfortable standing and speaking their truth. And that is a benefit of social media. We have access to all different brands of functioning, all different types of, of living that don't involve this sort of unilateral depiction of college years or getting, you know, the, the rite of passage in teenage years and early 20s. Yeah, I feel like the one of the biggest struggles for me, especially like avoiding drinking, was like you said, like having that seeking the approval of other people. And I, I felt like I was like the awkward guy. I didn't like it when people would even... I didn't even like the conversation where people would ask me, Hey, do you want a beer? And I'd say, no, I'm all good. I don't really drink. Like that's kind of my right. line all the time is I don't really drink. It's all good. Like I'm okay. And then I have that conversation. Oh, why? And it's like, well, like I almost feel bad explaining it. Cause you feel like you're like kind of putting your negativity on them. You're like, exactly. I'm so sorry. You're all good. Yeah. But like, I, I'll, I'll always explain it like, look, man, I, I get up pretty early. I want to be effective tomorrow. Like I have a goal to do this or that. And I feel like sometimes like I'm putting my own judgment on them or they at least feel like, and it just becomes this weird, mm -hmm. like I hate the conversation in general. And so mm -hmm. like for a long time, I would try and fake it. I would become the one beer kind of guy where I would have the same beer all night in my hand. And it's just something to do with my hand and I would take the smallest yeah. sips possible. And like, that's what I would figure is like, nobody's measuring how much I drink. So if they just see me with the beer, they'll assume that I'm good. Like I'm, I'm Correct. normal. I'm part of it. And then I was like, I'm still drinking that one drink just to please other people. Right. Well, and I think that's what's important is that most folks are projecting onto others, their own insecurities, their own inner monologue of ambivalence, perhaps. And it's this idea of, you know, you're in the barbershop, get a haircut, right? Like, what, what do you, you know, I want to participate in 
fun. And the truth of the matter is, is that it's really just a projection of them. And so that's what I tell people all the time. If somebody's really authentically that interested in what you're drinking or how much you're drinking and why you're not drinking, by and large, it's a projection of their own, you know, inner monologue and their own doubts and insecurities. I mean, it's possible and and I think at times likely that people just are curious, but beyond the curiosity, I think the push for why not drink up, what's going on, you're such a, you know, fill in the blank, I think that's more about them. Yeah, I 100% agree. I feel like, yeah, I feel like my problem at the end of the day was like just kind of that social conformity. It's like, I don't know what to do with my hands right now. I don't know what I'm doing, so I'm gonna just, that's why now my staple is just either mm-hmm. a coffee because coffee is something you can sip kind of slowly. Like, you know, you and I have been sipping a coffee and it's been almost an hour. We've been talking yes. for an hour, right? So it's like you can sip a coffee for a long time or soda crayons or just water because like nobody can tell. You could just say yep. oh, it's vodka water. You know, they don't have any clue on what you're actually drinking. So you can, it, it gives you something to Correct. do with your hands. It gives you some way to conform, but you're still sticking to what you think is good. When you became sober, like, did you have to cut people out? Is there that aspect of it for you? Because I know, like, like we've kind of been talking about, like, there's the, there's the route where you kind of cut all ties, cut all your anchors, mm-hmm. and you're like, hey, I'm not going to hang out with anybody that drinks excessively. But then there's also the side of the mentality of, I can be around these situations and be true enough to my character and true enough to the person that I truly am that I don't have to partake in that. I can still go to the party and not drink. Like, how was that for you in the beginning stages? How is it now? Yeah, I mean, look, the truth is, is that toward the end of my uh, non-sobriety, I was really in an isolated um lonely spot it was no longer glamour and parties it was more gloom and um you know sort of being paralyzed emotionally and socially um so there wasn't really that many people to cut out uh in all candor i did um just by virtue of where I got sober and some life decisions i ended up just being in a different state i'm from florida originally But, um, you know, the cool thing about being sober and in recovery actively and having some type of program is um, that I can go anywhere, be around anyone and virtually do anything and live freely and not feel the threat of, you know, alcohol and drugs and that pressure. Um, At the same time, for a lot of folks who are newly sober, I think, stimulus avoidance is something that could be really, really helpful. You know, surrounding ourselves with folks who are living a life that's more congruent with ours, to a certain extent, limiting exposure to former people, places, things that generate triggers. But, you know, part of why alcohol and drugs weren't working anymore is that I still felt like my life was in a landmine, that I didn't know when or where or how and if there would be some type of you know hurdle that detonated or some type of crisis that i was just going to step onto mostly inner and emotional in sobriety and recovery i i don't feel that way but it took me a while to get there so certainly like my first year i wasn't really going to bars i don't 
now anyway. And that wasn't really a huge part of my story, even when I wasn't sober. But, um, you know, I think just surrounding ourselves with new reinforcing supports is really crucial. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that. I think that, again, it's something that you kind of have to balance. Like you can't just avoid yeah. a situation because it makes you uncomfortable, but you also can't just immerse yourself and surround yourself with it all the time and expect that you'll be able to distance yourself from it mentally. That's exactly right. So that actually is the perfect transition into what I was going to start asking you. So I like a little bit about my story. I started dealing with my mental health issues at a really young age. I, I think that there was a depression noticed in me by my teachers, by my parents at around the age of like eight, nine years old. And then I never really addressed it through my late teens and early twenties is when I started to actually get some, some medical help, both obviously with medication, but also just with guidance from counselors and psychologists. And for the longest time, I guess I went back and forth in my head, like, Hey, this is something I can deal with on my own. I don't actually have a problem or, you know, whatever the reason was not to get help. And then there was other days where I was like, I definitely need help. I'll schedule that doctor's appointment. And I just went back and forth. So like, I guess, how did you know that? Cause you, you're on both sides of the spectrum. You give help and you receive help. Mm -hmm. But how, how do you kind of know when you need help or like, I guess why or when should someone reach out for help? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think the truth is, is uh, this muscle, you know, we learn all types of ridiculous things in high school and, you know, school in general that are so, for most of us, not applicable. You know, I learned trigonometry and calculus and statistics by the time I was 16, but I had no idea how to pick up the phone and ask for help when I was emotionally struggling. I certainly had no idea how to, you know, pay taxes or, you know, do laundry. But um, this sort of basic human need for support and help, I think, is something that really is not, unfortunately, wired into us from an early age. And so the truth is, I think we always need that. We always need support and resources and help. And I tell people all the time, in order to not stigmatize receiving help, we have to, as a society, get into a better uh, pattern of accessing support and help when we're not in crisis, right? Making it a mainstay of our life and of our human existence. So saying I need help are perhaps three of the most challenging and um, you know, vulnerable words that we can ever utter. And yet on the other side of that is truly the capacity for limitlessness, for being able to offer support to others, for being able to realize and conquer our goals. But there's a myth that we arrive to success, whatever that looks like, on our own volition in the absence of any help. I think a lot of folks, maybe men in particular, pride themselves on, I got here on my own, no one helped me, uh, right? Self-made, self-made. Exactly, that sort of brutish force, I think uh, is, again, something that might be initially helpful, but it's not sustainable. 
You know, it's absent connection, it's absent vulnerability. And vulnerability is one of the ways that we build courage and tenacity and meaning in our lives. And we can't build vulnerability unless we really have the courage to be able to say, I need some support, I need some help, right? And we can't wait until we're feeling like our mental health is in complete jeopardy and that we're in crisis to practice utilizing that muscle. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I think that obviously I have a pretty biased opinion because I am pretty vulnerable, I'd say, a lot of the time. I'm pretty open about my story and my experience. And I encourage other people to do the exact same. But I feel like vulnerability is the ultimate courage. It's like, yes. you, like humans, like from a physical standpoint, we're the only mammals that stand up straight and have all of our organs just completely exposed. And I feel like that's right. It's, it's kind of a metaphor almost for how we should be as well. Like, here's all my weaknesses. I don't care. Mm. Like, that's kind mm. of the courage behind it. It's like, I don't care. And when mm. I expose my weaknesses, then guess what? Someone can come along and say, hey, Mark, you know what? Like you said earlier, hey, I can challenge you with this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. And then I can reflect back and I can say, hey, you know what? He's right about this. He's right about this. This is something I can work on. And so by being exactly. vulnerable and being courageous enough to be vulnerable, that is how you grow. Absolutely. And one thing I'll just add is, you know, instead of this notion of here I am in all my warts, my flaws, my everything, and I don't care. I think the truth is most human beings do care. Like there's something that's healthy and sort of ego reinforcing about I care. It reinforces effort. But this idea of I care, it's uncomfortable. It produces feelings of guilt and shame and unworthiness in me. And I'm willing to do it anyway, because on the other side of that hurdle is a land of connection, is a land of strength, and is the capacity to really no longer be limited by the bounds of our own insecurities. I tell people all the time, our toughest moments make us who we are, right? If we think about our past, most of us don't recall and reflect upon growth when things were lollipops and roller coasters and, you know, uh, lemon drops. Most of us grow through struggle and through hurdle, and we learn about who we are as a result of navigating through crisis, conflict, and hardship. Yeah. I, what's that saying? It's like uh, smooth seas don't produce a skilled sailor. Is that sailor. what it is? Sailor. That's right. Yep. And so I kind of, I think that really resonates with me. I think that's one of my biggest takeaways today, actually, but it's, it's always something yeah. that is in the back of my head. I, I, I had one more thing I was going to, I was going to ask you about and sure. And it's something that I've, I feel like I've got a pretty strong opinion on or a pretty uh, solidified perspective on, but I, I want to pick your brain before I tell you the way I think of this, but like, am I ever going to be cured of depression or anxiety or whatever I'm dealing with, whatever I'm getting help for? Is there an end? Is there, is there a cure for it? Like, am I going to be better and just not have to deal with this anymore? Listen, it's a much easier question than what it could have. You could have asked me my impression of the last uh, season of Game of Thrones, and that would have been really <laughs> potentially controversial. Um, look, I, uh, the good news is... I think 
um, when we're in the work and taking care of ourselves, the cure becomes less relevant than the process, right? You know, the, the prize is sort of in the process rather than the outcome. Um, the, I guess bad news is that to be a member of the living world in an active, vulnerable way, I think that we're always doing work on ourselves. So it's sort of this idea of at what point do I maintain a six pack and my vigor and strength and no longer need to eat healthily and exercise. And, you know, science may one day accomplish. Right. Right. <laughs> science may one day accomplish that. It has not done so yet. And so, um, you know, I, I think the gift is that we're always in the work in some sense. It doesn't mean that someone's always in psychotherapy. In fact, I think that psychotherapy and different provision of mental health services for most people don't necessarily need to be an ongoing thing forever. You know, things wax and wane, but to be able to maintain strides and I believe um, gains some type of continual ongoing investment in wellness and whatever that brand of wellness looks like for you, I think is really crucial, key, and also rewarding. I a hundred percent. I love the way that you said all of that. That is pretty, pretty uh, consistent with the way that I look at it as well. I feel like a lot of, a lot of people that I view to be successful or I view to be inspirational or motivating, you fall under that category I find that the reason I look up to people is because they have the same thought process as me in the sense that you you have to almost fall in love with the process. You have to like the process and it's the actual process that is the reward. That's what I really like that what you said is the process is the reward. Like I, I have really weird freakish things about myself that I feel like are really helpful for my mental health that people wouldn't think of as traditional ways to help mental health. I think yeah. that, you know, waking up early every single day, I feel like if you have anxiety or depression, my first piece of advice for you is to wake up early. Like that's the first thing I would say to you is you got to wake up early because everyone I know that deals with anxiety or depression is like waking up at 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, mm-hmm. one o'clock in the afternoon type of thing. So I always tell people like, you got to wake up early and people ask me like, well, when are you going to stop waking up early and going for a run at four o'clock, five o'clock? I'm like, that's the thing is that's the reward. That's what you're not understanding. Mm. Like, that's not how I get to, that's how I consistently get to a place where I feel confident or I feel like an underdog because that's what makes me feel good. I like what you said. Right. It's sort of this idea of like, when do I need to stop doing blank? And whatever that blank is, it could be something that's motivating and helps people to stay connected with their recovery and goals. It could be the gym, it could be Alcoholics Anonymous, whatever it is. And the answer is, you know, when sort of that person stops asking that question, right? When there's no longer a struggle to be able to do that. I think accepting the fact that part of being vulnerable, part of being in the healing uh, journey and path involves not being focused on the goal. The sort of what next becomes less relevant than I'm here now, right? And I'm invested in this process and I'm connected. I relate a lot of 
things surrounding, especially like my mental health and my self-development, I relate a lot of them to brushing my teeth. Mm. Like you never have anybody ask you, I, I would assume as much, you never have anybody ask you, oh, when do I have to stop brushing my teeth? Is there a, like a right. level of cleanliness or, or whiteness in my teeth that I'm achieving right. and, and then I could stop? No, it's like, dude, you don't stop showering. You don't stop Correct. brushing your teeth. You don't stop like, you know, maybe there's a day that you forget to, but then what do you do? You continue doing it the next day, right? Correct. Like it's like- And you can't stay clean today from yesterday's shower. Right. I mean, some might agree, yes. particularly if you have an alpha male audience. I don't want to stereotype, but you know, <laughs> you, you generally speaking, gotta be invested in those tools regularly. Yeah, it's like you know, eating healthy or sleeping eight hours at night, or you know, putting out clean clothes for yourself the next day. You know, those types of things. Like, I feel like uh, one of the big catalysts for me was having that discipline and that self accountability. Be like, look, like you're not taking care of these parts of your life. Like, no wonder you're not feeling okay. There yeah. was a lot of other things that I had to deal with. Obviously, I did have you know medical intervention. I, I did use you know medication for quite a few years. I've seen mm -hmm. professionals for it, but I feel like a lot of what helped me was a lot of, you know, dealing with these lack of disciplines in certain areas of my life. Like I never made my bed until I was probably 16, 17 years old. I didn't yeah. learn how to do laundry. Literally my roommate taught me how to do laundry this year. Like it's Correct. pathetic to say, but like these are the things that, you know, once I started to take advantage of, you know, self-accountability and discipline, then I started to see these positive shifts in my mental health across the board. No question. I like that. That's, that's kind of one of the things that I don't know if that's something that you kind of have to deal with, uh, with your clients or maybe like taking a look at their accountability or their discipline. But that, that was something that it definitely was a huge shift for me. Big time. And I, I think that this ongoing investment in wellness is so key. And, you know, look, one of the things that I experienced, and I think a lot of uh, professionals in mental health, um, and I'm so sorry, I'm just looking at time. I do have to go in a couple of minutes just because I have a 9.30 appointment. I got you, but, I got you. Um, what I will say is, you know, there's this sense of pressure and I think a level of projected pressure onto mental health professionals of, okay, I'm in your office once a week for a 50 minute hour, cure me like what are you going to say that's going to like i'm sort of waiting and you know, look, what i yeah and what i say to my clients uh, a lot of the times and not to be glib but just to be sincere is that you know, this isn't a broadway production like you're not this isn't you know dear evan hansen or hairspray and where i'm going to impact you with some fabulous monologue or you know chorus scene at the end. I mean, I could try, but uh, the truth is, is that the real work and the real growth comes in the interim of sessions and utilizing skills in a meaningful, functional way to impact change and to provoke a spark and to provoke a greater sense of investment in solution and in wellness. Wow, that that got me literally. I got to write this down right now because the next time we don't ask me to repeat it because I have no idea what I said. But no, I have it recorded. It's all good. 
but I, I, I had to write down some of these questions that I, I, I got to ask you next time, but out of respect for your time, we'll wrap things it. up right now. I do my own intros, but I don't do my own outros. So you're going to okay. do the outro for me again, tell people, you know, where they can find you, what you're all about, but here's my yeah. thing. You have to give people a little message of either inspiration, motivation, or just some positivity. If they've listened to us for this long, you got to bless them with some sort of a message that's going to leave them feeling better than they did when they started listening. All right. Perfect. Pressure's this on. Is my closing monologue and my chorus scene. Look, exactly. Um, so again, Mark, thank you so much for having me on this morning. I love your energy. I love what you're doing. And I love the spark that you're provoking. And I think it's so important to be a non-mental health professional and to be on the forefront and frontier of generating change and really embodying the sense of courage and vulnerability to um, navigate through some tough issues that I think historically are really difficult for everyone to talk about, particularly a male audience, potentially. Um, you know, I'm Dr. Josh Mermelli. My Instagram handle is at Dr. Josh Mermelli. That's at dr. Josh, J-O-S-H-M-I-R-M-E-L-L-I. You can also find me on drjoshmermelli.com. And the tagline that I will use to close off is, you don't have to settle for fine. I think we have a sense of needing to just get by. You know, this is good enough. I'm not struggling. I've conquered that hurdle, whether it's a paycheck to paycheck phenomenon or a experience to experience phenomenon. I believe that we have the potential to live more wholehearted, connected and empowering lives. And that comes from not being willing to just settle and being invested in vulnerability, courage, and taking leaps of real confidence and trust that there's something on the other side of all of this. And I believe that there is. That's beautiful. I couldn't have said it any better myself. It, it, gives, uh, it gives people a sense of purpose. It gives people a sense of passion. And I think that after viewing those things, I think that that's kind of the thing that will push them through whatever they're going through right now. Absolutely. Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate My pleasure. your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mark. I look forward to chatting with you very soon. And hopefully the next time we speak, there's some uh, relief with everything that's happening. 100%. So stay healthy and safe. You as well. And everyone listening as well. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark.